We're looking at Second Peter. If you want to take your Bibles and turn over to Second Peter, and I'm going to rush back through it just real quick. That text that we're looking at deals with false prophets and false teachers. And uh, let's ask God's blessing on this time. Dear Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace and for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that's been set aside. Thank you for your word. I pray that it will be clear and that you'll use it in our hearts and lives for your glory. That you'll speak to us tonight, meeting us at the point of our need. And that you would make us more of what you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your mercy and grace. And ask your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul, we mentioned we started talking when Paul is, when Peter is writing this, that he's dealing with false prophets and false teachers. And the, the thing that we want to notice here is at the very beginning when he says false prophets arose among the people, and just as there will also be false teachers among you, that these are false prophets and false teachers that are within the church, within the body, uh, that they are there doing their deceptive work. It says goes on to say they will introduce destructive heresies, uh, even denying the master who bought them. And obviously, if a false teacher, which is not a saved person, can't can't deny the master who bought him because he's not saved, he wasn't bought. But what this is saying is that these people in the church are denying the master that bought the church, that that is the savior of the church, and so on and so forth, and that they're they're bringing destruction upon themselves. And so Peter's warning about these kinds of things that are taking place and these kinds of people that are being involved. And he talks about the judgment that's going to come upon them. God didn't spare the angels when they sinned. Uh, and he didn't spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah. And he goes on giving a list of, of illustrations of God's judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God able, was able to rescue righteous Lot. The summary is that God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation while keeping the unrighteous under penalty for judgment. And I think the application there is this, that when you have false prophets and false teachers in the fellowship, God is going to bring judgment upon them, but at the same time, he is not going to bring condemnation and judgment upon the righteous, but they will be preserved, and that God's judgment will fall upon the guilty. And uh, it, it doesn't. He goes on to talk about that the, the, the judgment is not idle; it doesn't sleep. That uh, he is he is going to be able to bring that judgment. The um, the text that follows, I've divided it sort of to help us follow it. Uh, the first section is dealing with the pride of these false teachers, and we looked about we looked at that. They are daring their self will. They don't tremble in angelic majesties. They don't tremble when they deal with with angels and demons and things like that. They don't respect that. They are arrogant. Uh, They are like unreasoning animals. Uh, They are creatures that are created for the purpose of being uh, of uh, slaughter and destruction. And uh, so this is is the kind of people, these false prophets, they are very arrogant, very prideful, very self-centered, and uh, they're very, um, they bring swift destruction upon themselves. Following that section dealing with their pride is the next section, which I've called their philosophy, beginning in verse 13b. And that is that these false teachers and false prophets, uh, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are party animals, so to speak. Uh, They are involved in sensual, sexual perversions, as well as they are motivated by greed. And those two things seem to 
to motivate them. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Remember, I mentioned that during the, in the Roman culture back in the early days, there was plenty of sin in the Roman society, but they usually kept it in the back alleys and at night. But these uh, false teachers uh, revel in the daytime. They party in the daytime. They seek their luxurious lifestyle, their soft, uh, easy lifestyle. Let me just say, and we're going to be looking at that as we move on, but uh, an easy lifestyle is not conducive to Christian growth. Uh, an easy, soft, self-indulgent lifestyle does not produce Christian growth. A lot of times it produces arrogance. A lot of times it produces self-centeredness and selfishness and greed, but it doesn't produce Christian growth. I'm convinced, and I've shared this with you before, that suffering is the pathway to growth. When God wants us to grow, that he puts us through a measure of suffering, and it's through that suffering that he gets our attention and he helps us to, to grow and to move uh, into maturity. Verse 14, which is the verse I'm going to slow down with for just a moment as he's talking about these these uh, false teachers that are like stains and blemishes, they are like malignant sores. He, he refers to them, he says in verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, uh, they are enticing unstable souls and they bring swift they're having a heart trained in greed. All of these terms that are used here are terms that speak of a habitual kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle that carries with it some practices that have long-term effects in them. And so um, the reason I say that is uh, that, that these guys have, 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 uh, have practiced these things and they've developed these things into their lives and it's become a habit. I'm going to be talking in a few minutes about the power of choice in your life. Uh, these these guys have these false prophets have made choices in the early days of their lives when in the what we might call the days of wine and roses when life seemed to be good and they could make decisions and do things and it didn't necessarily cost them too much. They were probably popular and they made some financial gains but later on these things kind of close in around them and it becomes dominating and they become more and more entrenched and enslaved in that thing in these things and here you see this uh these terms that have eyes full of adultery that is that they are just obsessed with that it just dominates their lives and they're not able to to kind of get away from this kind of passion in their lives uh, they are ne never able to cease from sin, that their sin dominates their lives. You see what I'm saying? It, it corrupts them. Uh, it's, not, it's not something to play around with. When you make choices in your life, they, it can dominate, it can destroy your life. They are involved in, in the enticing unstable souls. Uh, they have a heart that has been trained in greed. They know how to manipulate. They know how to work in behind the scenes with people and to work with getting funds and taking advantage of people and stuff like that. And so they are, they are in that situation, very vile, very wicked, habitual, uh, sinful people like that. They are doomed. They're called children or cursed children. They are those that, that are, are in the church, that they are defiling the work. They are corrupt. And they are those that are, that are doomed already to eternal destruction. They are, they are blemishes. They are sores. They are stains. They are doomed to destruction. Peter is warning us about them, and I think the warning is a good warning. And just remember this as we as we are talking about this kind of thing. 
that um, our lives, decisions that we make in our lives in younger years pays off or destroys us down the path later in life. And um, it, it does matter what we do. It does matter the decisions that we make because they end up like a domino, having a domino effect. And it, it affects other things. And uh, we, at the time we make those decisions, <clears throat> we don't think about that. We just think we want to have fun. We want to do it. It's going to be fun. And we're going to go out. I remember when I was in high school, you know, I told you my father did a lot of drinking and stuff. And so because of that, I didn't participate in that until I got quite a bit older. I did drink, but it wasn't until I got a bit older. I was scared of the alcohol and stuff. And, but I had friends in school. And I remember one night with, over at my friend Jim Pike's house, and uh, he and several of the buddies had gotten a big uh, thing of uh, Budweiser, small can of Budweiser. And we, we spent the night up in the uh, room up over the barn, and we were up there clowning around and goofing off and stuff. And they were opening up those buds and drinking them, and it seemed to be a good life and stuff like that and everything. But I didn't partake of it. And that later on that night, when they got sleeping, and got ready to go to bed, we got really cold. We got cold, and we didn't have anything to keep us warm. Finally, we went down and went to the house. And lay down on the couch on the floor in the living room in front of the heater. There was a heater, heater there, a kerosene heater that had a fan that blew hot air out the bottom. And I laid down in front of that. I was thinking about uh, you, Rick, and the, how cold it got when you're taking those cold showers. Laid in front of that heater, boy, I just passed out like that and slept real good after that. But anyway, you don't think about these things when you're young. You just want to party and have a good time. But God has, has really has really preserved me, and I'm sure he's preserved you lots of times when you would end up in a cornfield or doing stupid things and getting in trouble, and God has overruled your foolishness and preserved you, and he's done that with me. He's saved me many times, even recently, decisions that I want to make that are not good decisions, that he, would, he can save, he can preserve us through these things, and he's so good to do that. He's a shepherd. And he's just really good to do that. And I just really appreciate that. So um, here are these false teachers and their, their uh, philosophy is a self-indulgent philosophy. They are, they are those that sin. Let me just say this too. Bible makes it clear that when you practice sin, you become a slave to sin. And that's true. That is absolutely true. And more and more, every time you sin and every time you indulge the flesh, what is Galatians 6, 7, and 8? Is probably the, one of the best verses before this. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that, and the text actually says that, and that alone he will also reap. He sows to the flesh, or from the flesh reap death. He that sows to the spirit will reap life. So when you sow, you contribute, you make decisions. If you make decisions toward the flesh, it becomes easier and easier to make decisions toward the flesh and harder and harder to make decisions that represent life, that live, that are, are directed by the Spirit of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it becomes more and more ingrained in you. We think we can go ahead and live this way and yet reap the harvest of spiritual life. But the text says, don't be deceived. You're trying to mock God. You're not going to get away with that. You're not going to mock God. So it's a serious warning about our life and about the decisions that we make in life. Now we come to the third section here in this this section. This is new scripture verses uh, 15. I'll read it to you and then we'll back up and, and just kind of go through it quickly. Um, verse 15 says, forsaking 
the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Notice that he begins by saying he has forsaking the right way. I want to just talk about that for a moment. I don't think he's referring primarily here to uh, making this is the right way, uh, I suppose, conservative, and this is the wrong way, as opposed to liberalism, or this is necessarily a, a smart way. I think he's talking about, when he talks about the right way, I think he's talking about the way of the Lord, the scriptures, and God's word, and God's truth. And I'll tell you why. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Uh, Psalm 118, which is the psalm that deals with God's word, if you're probably familiar with that. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, um, and it's divided up into 22 sections. Each section corresponds with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So like in the English, in A, B, C, D, E, F, G, in Hebrew, you'd get the alphabet and you'd go through the letters in Hebrew. And each section, every verse in each section begins with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all the way through the entire alphabet. And every verse also has some word relating to the Bible, to the a synonym for the Bible. If you get through it and read Psalm 119, you'll find every one of them. There's some reference either to the scriptures or to the law or to God's truth or to the way of righteousness, something that has to do with the Bible. And so let me just give you two verses out of Psalm 119. One of them is uh, Psalm 119.1, which says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Uh, that way of, of the way that is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, that describes what it means to, to take that way. It's the way that is blameless. It's the way in the law of the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Another verse is uh, verse 33 of Psalm 119, where he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. So there again, the word, the, the way of the Lord, the way of your statutes, has to do with God's word and God's truth. Um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 5, Jeremiah says, um, I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. So the way of the Lord there is called, is, is applied parallel with the ordinance of God. They too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and they burst the bonds. And Judges, uh, he talks about, he says, I will, I will no longer drive them out before any of the nations with Joshua. They talking about the people that normally he would drive out. God says, I'm not going to drive those people out anymore. But those that Joshua left in the land, when he died, I'm going to leave them there in order that they can test Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or did not. That way of the Lord is the way that's in keeping with the scripture, what God has commanded. The same is true in Genesis 18, 19, where uh, the Lord is talking about Abraham. He says, I've chosen Abraham so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon him, upon Abraham, what he has spoken about him. So do you see what I'm saying? This way, the right way is the way of the Lord. It's the way of God's statutes. It's the way of God's truth. These false prophets, he says, have forsaken the truth, have forsaken the right way. 
<clears throat> they've turned away from it. The word forsaken uh, is a good word um, that means to abandon, to turn away. They can't blame anything other than themselves because they themselves have forsaken the right way. They themselves have chosen to turn their back on the truth. Let me give you another reference to where this word is used. And there are many, many references. But in Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 27 and 28, which is a, one of the passages I really enjoy, it's the call of Jesus to Matthew Levi. You know, Matthew Levi, Matthew was one of the disciples. Uh, he was a tax collector, which tells us, even though it may not say it right at that particular point, but tells us he was a person that was very despised in the Jewish community. In fact, later when he was called, Matthew invited Jesus and the disciples over to his house and the scribes saying, what is this guy? He's dining with tax gatherers and sinners. Matthew invited all of his crony buddies to the dinner there with Jesus, and Jesus was dining with them and talking with them, and, and the Pharisees were having a hard time with that. But anyway, here's Matthew sitting at this table. I'm sure, reading between the lines, that he had heard about Jesus, knew about Jesus, was aware of it. And here's Matthew with this, this rugged background, this harsh background, insensitive to the people because he's gotten hard, he's made a lot of money, he's done well, but he's heard of Jesus, he's probably heard his teaching a little bit, and he's been sensitive to that, he, he's, I, I imagine, but I don't know, but I imagine he's probably thinking that that uh, Jesus would never have anything to do with him, he's an outcast of everything, and he would be the worst of the worst, and nobody would have anything to do with him, so he's sitting there at the, the seat of custom, he's got his books open, he's got his money out there, and he's taking money from the people, when all of a sudden the shadow of a man's head crosses his book, he looks up into the eyes of Jesus. And Luke 5, 27 says, And he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind, closed his book, left the money, they gave it to the Roman there, got up, and left everything and followed Jesus. Just like that. Now that phrase... He left everything behind is the same word that's used to speak of these false prophets that have forsaken the truth, the word of God, the right way. They have turned away. They've left it. They've walked away from it. They're not coming back. And so it's a pretty strong term. It says they've forsaken personal, deliberate. um, They have have forsaken the right way. Uh, they have refused to walk, if you will, in the, in the obedience of the scriptures. And I'm, that's why I'm saying you talk about decisions that you make. You start making these decisions and you think, <clears throat> well, maybe after maybe a couple of years, I'm going to go back. I'm just going to live it up for a while. Then I'm going to turn back and go back and do some other stuff. But no, once you make that decision, once you start going down that path, your heart becomes hardened. It becomes Harder and harder and harder to go back. It becomes harder and harder to repent. Now, God can bring about repentance. God can do that. He can bring about uh, and, and make us sensitive, make us sensitive to what the Lord is doing, make us make our conscience sensitive. He can do that. Um, Paul says in Romans, one of my favorite verses, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel or it is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation is the word for deliverance. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. Now, when you think about the power of God, you think about 
the power that he exercised in creating the sun. You know, it's the power the sun releases. They say that if you could take all the energy that is released from the sun in a second and convince it and focus it on the meeting the energy needs of the earth, it would take care of the earth for over a year of all the energies that the earth uses. It could take care of, oh, yeah, just the energy that it's, thank you, that day, released from the sun. And so this is, um, this is, and this God who created the sun created the entire universe and all the stars and all the galaxies. Think about the power that he has. Think about the power that he has in that, that he has created, that's at his disposal. The gospel is the power of God unto deliverance, deliverance from sin. So God can change our hearts and our lives, uh, even a heart and center. But most of the time, most of the examples, I know that in CEF, most of the people that come to faith come younger, not older. The older they get, the harder it is. The harder it is to repent. The harder it is to break away from the old habits. And these false leaders here have this uh, habit, these practices ingrained in them. They have made a decision in the younger days to leave the word, to abandon the right way, and to pursue the wrong way, to go their own way. So they have chosen They've chosen a different path from perhaps what they were raised. That different path has led to a, a different vocation in their life. And, and that happens, doesn't it? You make choices. Make cho- I've made choices in, in printing, and now I've kind of set a career in my life. It, it, it's just something I needed to do. My dad was in printing. They thought at the college I went to that I could, because my father was in printing, I'd be able to fill it up. I didn't know anything about printing at all. And so I went in there and they had a guy come up from the city and he taught me some basics about running the printing. So I started that and that kind of launched a, a mini career for my life in printing. You see what I'm saying? And these, this can happen. You can get started in something and it can, that, that different path can lead to a different vocation and that different, that the vocation can lead to an indulged life and that life can lead to a destiny. And so the power of choice is very important. It makes a difference. And the illustration here is that these false prophets that have made these choices have gone astray, gone astray from the path that God intended for them to go. They have followed the way of Balaam. And you know the prophet Balaam in the Old Testament. I was going to read it, but I'm not going to do it because I don't have time to read that. But if you want to turn to Numbers 22, you can read about this prophet Balaam. And here's this, this guy. He's kind of an enigma because he is called a prophet and he talked to the Lord and the Lord answered him. But he was one who the text says loved the payment, the wages of unrighteousness. He was one who liked the money. We talked about we talked about that a lot today about uh, being in the ministry for money and for profit. And he was. He wanted the money and he liked the money. And this Balak, who was the king of Moab, saw how God was his. Uh, <clears throat> would listen to the prophet and and answer him, and uh, the, he was concerned about the children of Israel because they were they were having great success over their enemies, and so he was very concerned about that. And so they he asked Balaam. He said, "I want you to curse the children these these sons of Israel, these sons of Abraham, curse them so that they won't attack me and that they won't be a threat to me." And so Balaam said, "Well, I have to." Check with the Lord, and so he did, and the Lord said, don't do that, so he didn't, so Balak uh, came back with another, with another offer, more money, and more prestige, and more glamour, and uh, Balaam went to the Lord, and the Lord said, well, you can, you can go with him, and, and 
but you don't, you're not going to curse the children of Israel. What it was is this guy loved money and he wanted, he wanted the wages of unrighteousness. He was concerned about that more than anything else. And that seems to be the idea here that he was holding up for these, this, these false prophets. They are in the ministry. They like the prophet. They like the gain that comes from that. Balaam eventually, and I'm not going to be able to read it now, but if you want to take your Bible later and turn to Numbers 31, you will find there in Numbers 31 uh, that passage deals with God bringing judgment upon the daughters, the people of Midian, because they had corrupted Israel. Uh, they had come down to the camp of Israel, and the daughters had danced around outside and enticed a lot of the men. You remember that story? And the men had been attracted to them, and they had gone down, and they, a lot of them had taken these women for themselves and had led them into sin. God had brought some judgment upon the sons of Israel because they had been enticed by these Midianite women. And so there was this battle. But the thing is that this is that this deception, this this wicked, sinful seduction was Balaam's idea. And that he used that as a way he couldn't get at Israel any other way. So he just evidently he told Balak, he said, you bring those women down and you put them there, let them dance around in front of the camp. They will entice the men. The men will come down and they will pursue them. They will lead them away from Jehovah and then God will judge them. And so that was a, that's kind of a corrupting influence, a deceptive influence. And that's what's used in this passage here when it talks about that they have forsaken the right way. They have chosen a different path, a different vocation. They've gone a different life with a different destiny. They've gone that way, and they've followed the way of Balaam. They've gone the way of destruction who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And he goes on to say uh, that uh, Balaam received, if you remember this, which is sort of a humorous true story, he received a buke from his own trans for his own transgression um, from a mute donkey. Remember that story in the scriptures? I think that's interesting that Balaam, who was supposed to be a man of God, was rebuked by a donkey, an animal, a beast of burden. It is, is, it is humiliating enough to be rebuked by a, another Christian. If you're doing something and your Christian says, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. But it's somebody who is really have a godless, godless lifestyle, who lives in, and you know that they're just all the time doing things they shouldn't do. And they come and they make some comment about your lifestyle that, it's, that you're doing something wrong and I'm surprised at you. Well, that really, really cuts. And here's Balaam. And he's being rebuked by this donkey in his, in his uh, perversion there. And it just shows how far he has, he has descended from, from being God's man. He has really gone downhill. So here's this donkey he rebukes. Uh, Balaam is rebuked by this donkey. He speaks with the voice of a man. He restrains the madness of the prophet. And the madness of the prophet, again, is a term, and this is one of the things we'll close with. Here is this, this the outflow of sin. It, it leads us away from having a sound mind. And the example that I think of in Scripture is the prodigal son. If you remember the prodigal son, uh, made some very harsh, cruel decisions in wanting his dad to, to settle his estate now. Give me my money. I want out of this house. I want out of this family. I want what's coming to me. 
And he really didn't care for the life of his father or anything else. He only was thinking of himself and his own, his own well-being. And probably you're like I am. You, you tell him that that's what you think, and you can just get out. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to waste my money on you and let you do that kind of nonsense. But his father gave him the, the funds because this is the story. This is the story that Jesus is telling. It's an illustration, and he gave him the funds. And this guy went out and he parted and he spent the money and wasted it away. Um, we don't know everything he wasted away. His brother thought he wasted away on Carlos. Life living, and he may probably well did. But anyway. When his money was gone, and he started needing to support himself, and so he started working for a friend. When he started working for his friend, all of a sudden the famine came and hit the land. And when the famine came, he couldn't get anything to eat, and couldn't. He was just destitute. When that happened, and he was willing to eat the slot. I don't know if you ever slot hog, but I've been around where they've slopped it, and I can tell you it's not. It, it doesn't make you hungry, but he was willing to to eat the. the stuff that they were feeding to the hogs. He was that hungry. And uh, it says, the Bible says he came to his senses. He came to his right mind. He'd been in his wrong mind. And and you know something? <laughs> we understand that wrong mind, don't we? We understand how he could want to settle that estate. We understand how he could want that money. We understand how he could want to go out and party and live it up. All of us like the easy lifestyle. All of us like a self-indulgence. All of us like to, to have nice things and to be able to buy those nice things. The upbringing and the, the background that we have would make us not want to say things like that to our parents and stuff like that. But we understand it. We understand that. We can empathize with that and, and thing. But we wouldn't. We wouldn't condone it. We wouldn't agree with it. But we would understand it. This guy did it. But then it says that. And, and we understand that corrupt mind, but then it says he came to his right mind and started thinking, you know, my father has all these servants. They work for him. They eat. They have plenty of food, and he takes good care of them. So I'm going to go back. I, I'm not even worthy to be a family member. I just want to be a servant. I'm going to ask my dad if he'll let me work for him as a servant and and earn ways and, uh, and just let me earn. And so he did, and he went back. Because he had come to his right mind. And of course, his father, you know the story, his father welcomed him back. And uh, that is a, a marvelous picture of the grace of God. Because all of us, when we come to the Lord, are in that state. Every one of us are in that state of rebellion, that state of depravity. And uh, so here is this, this picture then of this guy, these, these guys being rebuked, this guy Balaam being rebuked by this donkey. And it's restraining, it's holding back, it's it's uh, curbing, if you will, the madness, the the gravity of this false prophet, this bad. This, this, I shouldn't say a false prophet. Balaam, he's just he's a, he's an enigma. I don't understand how he can do what he's doing, but he's an enigma. And but he's he's in his, he's not in his right mind. He's out of his right mind. He's intoxicated with his desire and his passion, which is a warning to all of us because wealth and money and things like that can. And get hold of our lives and it, and I told you before and I'm going to finish with that that having an easy life having plenty of of um, I guess you could say financial blessings and easy blessings and uh, the easy lifestyle is not conducive to our growth 
the thing that God uses in our lives is suffering, is pressure. And uh, we know that. We know that from the scripture. Uh, we know that it takes, um, that the Lord has to get our attention. He has to do things to us to get our attention that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We, we don't come by ourselves. The Lord has to bring us to open our hearts and give us faith and bring us to himself and help us to see. And this is true of all of us. When James tells us about suffering, he says, account it joy whenever you go through these various trials, knowing that the testing or the proving or the, the, street, the, the stressful things that go in your faith produce endurance, produce steadfastness, produce uh, um, patience, if you will. That's what the King James uses. These things are productive in our lives. So God brings those things in our lives to help us grow to help us persevere because we don't do it very well. Okay? Any thoughts or comments before we close? All right, I'm just going to close this one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the words that Peter has given here tonight um, about these false prophets that are in the church, that are involved in the church, and how uh, they, the choices they have made have brought such destruction and led in such enslavement in areas and how that they are, they are displaying an attitude of madness, an attitude of, of uh, unrestrained corruption. And it, it's really a lesson to all of us. And I, I pray for me and I pray for us here because I, 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 I run into the temptations. I run into the trials and things that test me and, and uh, I know that we all do and I I thank you for your patience I thank you for your working in my heart and our hearts I thank you that you save us and deliver us from ourselves and that you have done that in my life I I can't even be I know one day probably in eternity we'll know but I can't begin to, to count the number of times that you have done things in my life at the time, I didn't necessarily like them, but I know that later that they have been those things that have saved me from making stupid decisions or doing stupid things that would lead me away from you and uh, cause me to stray away. And I just thank you for your, I thank you for your mercy and grace and your love and your protective. Thank you for the fact that you're my shepherd and that you watch over me and that you're our shepherd and you watch over us. Thank you for giving us your word and instructing us from your word and warning us of these things. Uh, help us to take these warnings like we look tonight in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, that we don't want to be deceived because you're not mocked, and whatever we sow to our life, we're going to reap. So help us help us to know that. You, you've told us to, to set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And so help us to know that. Help us to do that and, and to be warned of these things. And thank you so much. For your goodness to us. We ask your blessing upon us this week. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanksgiving. Amen.